So this past week, I think it was Wednesday, the second of the two days when it was just raining and raining and raining cats and dogs, I got into the elevator in my building, and a woman who's about, I don't know, 30, 40 years older than me, exchanged some pleasantries with each other, and then she started to complain mildly, mildly about the weather. Ah, it's so cold and damp, and is spring ever going to come, and when it's going to get here, and I just can't wait. And I turned and I said, well, April showers, you know the rest. The rain these last couple days, it's going to bring the flowers just on Thursday, just on Friday. Things are going to be beautiful and green and growing. And she turned and she smiled and she looked at me, said, I love it, an optimist in the elevator. That's right, I was a living incarnation of another more famous redhead, Annie, saying essentially the sun's going to come out tomorrow, everything's going to be all right. Now I tell you this specifically because I was not born sunny side up. <laughs> if you would have known me a decade ago, it would not have been my first response to say to a person complaining about the weather, well, look literally on the bright side, and not just the bright side, but the good stuff of what it means for all these showers to be raining down on us. But I must tell you, it was a very natural response for me to look on the bright side. I was given lots of gifts of love and generosity, many, many things about my family, but I was not given a sunny disposition by them. I come from a long line of How can I be nice when I say this? I come from a long line of anxious people. (laughs) I come from a long line of, of people who are, I can't even say waiting for the other shoe to drop. Because they didn't really trust that the first good shoe dropped to begin with. And I tell you this story about myself being the optimist in the elevator. Because I'm bringing to a close this message series I started last month, the series on building and maintaining your spiritual fitness. Because I must tell you that very natural, optimistic, hopeful outlook that I responded with and responded to this woman and her mild complaint, it is the result of my spiritual practices. It is the result of some very distinct, very different choices that I have been making day in and day out for the last several years of my life. I am much more hopeful now than I was before. And I've come to see the truth of what Abraham Lincoln said. And when he said it, it's, well, it's very often misunderstood. He said, most people are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. And I think the way a lot of people understand that is that somehow if you just recognize you're sad, and say, I'm going to be happy, that changes it. Well, I think it's kind of like George's father in Seinfeld, and he says, serenity now, serenity now, serenity now. It just doesn't work that way. The deeper meaning of what I think Lincoln was saying, and he was a world-class depressive. Happiness was not easy for Abraham Lincoln in his life. The meaning of what he said is this. That we are as happy as we make up our minds to be when we commit ourselves to the practice of making up our minds regularly. We make up our minds almost in the same way we brush our teeth or we make up our beds every day. 
It has to be a regular practice. And so this little interlude in the elevator gave me an opportunity to reflect and pause and ponder as a gift in some of the ways that I have changed, in some of the ways that my regular practice of sobriety and prayer and meditation and discernment have really altered who I am on some fundamental level, or at least brought out the sunshiny rays that for many years existed below the dark clouds with which I tended to lead. In any practice, whether it is a physical practice, a mental one, or a spiritual one, as we talk about here today, it is necessary to get that time apart, that opportunity to reflect, pause, let our labors and our efforts go so that we can actually recognize the progress that we have made. We recognize that we can stop perhaps for once kicking ourselves in the butt, and we might instead give ourselves a pat on the back for how we are moving forward in this life. Now, in our life, in our practice, it cannot be all effort all the time. I think this is what the Dalai Lama said when he said that the most important meditation in the world is sleeping meditation. We need our downtime. We need our quiet time. In exercise, in physical exercise, it is called the time of cooling down, cooling off, stretching out, letting our labors rest. In this moment, there is time to reflect on how far we have gone. Just someone came, came in this morning and said, I have run the longest I have ever run. And I think they said it was a quarter mile. And that's awesome, because that's how we start out. If we can recognize what we have done and savor it and feel good about it, then you know what? We got a half mile in you, and then maybe a mile someday. With regular rest and reflection upon our practice, whatever it is, we gain perspective upon the progress that we are making. And we truly see the fruits of any spiritual practice, not really when our head is bowed in prayer or our hands are open to the heavens or when we are posing on the yoga mats or when we are sitting in the lotus position. We see the fruits of spiritual practice in everyday life because spiritual practice is a core value here at Wellsprings because it is preparation for living It is preparation to be in the midst of life and be fully there, fully present, not pretending that we could be somewhere else but where we are. We want to inhabit our lives here at Wellsprings. This is what we encourage for all of us and all of you. When we take time out and take time away, we can see and we can claim the ways in which our practice has shaped us shaped us into the shape of a more whole, more healthy, more happy, less anxious, more grounded life. There's a story I really like about this, what we realize when we have a regular spiritual practice and we reflect on what it means for us. There's a very ancient story. It's a story of a monk who many, many centuries ago worked in the scriptorium in the community in which he worked. This is well, well, well before the printing press. There was no mass production of their sacred texts. And he worked and he worked and he worked all day, not just out of a sense of labor, but because this was his love. This was his act of devotion, maintaining the sacred texts of his tradition. And every night working by candlelight he would be asked by his brothers come eat dinner with us come spend time with us right now and he'd say i just have a little more work to do i have a little more work to do not have an obligation but because he loved what he was doing and so every night it would end up 
that he would eat his dinner by himself because he always wanted just a little more time to finish up. And then one day, one day, he said, I'm going to let off my labors when he was invited to eat with his brothers. And he lets off just before the final, final letter at the end of this sacred text. And he goes to eat and he enjoys fellowship for the first time in a long time at the table with his brothers. And when he gets back, he finds that the last letter has been finished in beautiful, elegant gold leaf. It has been taken care of, even as he let his labors drop. Now, this, of course, is a magical story. But really what it is about is something that is very, very down to earth. It is about maintaining the connection between mystery and mastery in our spiritual practice. We need both. It's not either or. Some people say it's all effort and some people say it's all a gift. It's not. It is both and, both mastery and mystery. Mastery is that sense of accomplishment, that sense of you are directing your energies day in, day out in such a way that you are making choices and making efforts so that you are living a fully committed life and you are controlling what you can control. But that mastery is incomplete if our choices do not connect up with that life that is larger than our own, whatever we choose to call it. I heard a great articulation of this by a guy named Gary Allen, who has run over the years. I first read it in the Boston Globe. A friend of mine actually wrote the article. Gary Allen has run 50, 60, 70 marathons over the years, but he runs one particular marathon every single year. While the rest of the world is sluggishly sleeping or just coming in from a long night out, He gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning on New Year's Day and gets himself to the start of the Boston Marathon course at 6 a.m. while it is still dark and the streets of Boston are quiet. This is how he describes what his journey is like every single New Year's Day. For runners, the course is bigger than any of us. I'm just a grain of sand on the beach. But during the run, when it's pitch dark and perfectly still, you can feel the energy. There have been so many dreams realized, and yes, so many dreams broken along that road. Now, this is a guy who knows what mastery is. He has the discipline to wake up every New Year's Day while it's still dark out and do that 26.2 mile run. He has the mastery of a disciplined life. But he knows at the same time it is about so much more than just willpower, than just his self-mastery. Because when he goes out there and he puts one foot in front of the other and he takes those paces through the race... He enters into that relationship to that which is bigger than himself. The energy of all those thousands of runners who have made the course what it is over the years. And he is not alone. Obviously, in a certain way, he chooses to go out there. But the mystical and wonderful part is that as he chooses to go out there, the course is also choosing him. Mastery and mystery. 
that place in which our individual effort somehow, somehow mysteriously, is lifted up into the larger work of the universe, and we know that the single part is connected to the larger whole. This is really what spirituality is about. Spirituality, which is a buzzword, spirituality, which we use a lot here at Wellsprings. Spirituality is this. It is the experience of an inner strength and peace that is connected to an external source of belonging. I will repeat that. Spirituality is the inner experience of strength and peace that is connected to an external source of belonging. In this we find in true spirituality that we are no longer disempowered or cut off or feeling that our own individual efforts don't make a difference, but we are committed and we are connected. We are disciplined and we are devoted. That is truly spiritual living. Now we take time out from our practice and we can see the connection between the self-mastery and the mystery, the larger mystery it connects with. We also experience a kind of thankfulness. We experience the ways in which spiritual practice has built our very lives. See, because cooling down and taking time apart is also a time to remember. Remember how we got to where we got. Now, I told some of you, I think maybe five, six weeks ago, that I was going to maintain a practice for Lent. I, who grew up Jewish, have probably walked into five or six Catholic churches in my entire life. My practice for Lent was letting go of all sugared sweets. No candy, which means, unfortunately, no gobstoppers. No cookies, no cake. And I think I told you at the time that I considered this to be, rather than a punitive kind of practice, you know, I've been bad, don't eat that cake. It was restorative. What I was recognizing that I was relying on the sweets to fill some part of myself that really yearned to be filled, a God-shaped hole, if you will, that a sugar rush was never, ever going to reach. So I had to get that impediment out of me if I was going to find the deeper hunger. And in fact, that's what I did. It's not just about the fact that I lost a few pounds. It's not just about the fact that I slept better. It's not just about the fact that I was more mentally grounded. What I did more than anything else in my spiritual practice of this Lenten practice was recognize the shape of my own hunger. How often I felt the urge to nosh on something that was only instant gratification when what I wanted was deeper gratification. Sometimes that's how food works with us. Sometimes maybe that's how food works with you. So last Easter, that being the official end of Lent, I broke my sugar fast. I was at a gathering and I had a really, really hunkin' big piece of, let me see if I can get all the wonderful things in it, Oreo chocolate cream double something, something, something cake. Tasted good. But, whoo! And then, ugh. I crashed. I slept so hard after that cake. And the reason I tell this to you and the reason I tell it to myself, first and foremost, is to remember. Remember why I let go of sugar in the first place. Because it was getting too strong a hold on me. Now, I also like remembering the meaning of that sugar high and then that sugar downer 
Because the opportunity to cool down and chill out from and away from our spiritual practice is also a real opportunity to take ourselves less seriously. There is nothing worse than a self-righteous saint. And I got to tell you, I know a lot of people in their path to spiritual enlightenment or what they believe to be their path to spiritual enlightenment, all that they are doing is cultivating yet another another in a long line of unhealthy attachments and unhealthy practices in their lives. See, our spiritual practice should not be a source for us of a kind of badge of honor. Look, world, at my advancing holiness. Look, world, at how enlightened... How great is my light? Which, by the way, yours is puny compared to mine, right? (laughs) No. It should be a source of authentic pride. Authentic pride that allows us to connect with others, not put ourselves up on the mountaintop or the pedestal. Now, at worst, we are open to the charges of religious hypocrisy when we do not practice what we preach in our spiritual practice and elevate ourselves over others. A number of years ago, a friend of mine told me about a church in New York City that he would pass very, very regularly. And this is a church that I guess charitably you could say their primary theology was angelology. Everything was angels. You are an angel. We are angels. Everything is light. Angels all around us. If only we will open up our minds. And by the way, I don't disbelieve in the idea of the angelic. I know a lot of rational, sane people who have had really amazing eye-opening, spirit-opening, extraordinary experiences with stuff that just doesn't make sense. And maybe those are angels. But this church extolled itself. All are welcome because all have light and all are angelic. And what my friend told me is that that's what they trumpeted at the front gate of this church in New York City. But down below, almost in fine print, what they said is, church reserves the right to refuse entry to anyone who is not dressed appropriately. I guess you better have your wings before you go into that church, right? Well, what this story really says is that it is so easy for us to fall in love with the ideal. Fall in love with the ideal world as opposed to and as exclusion to the real and messy world where actual saints and holy people show up. Talking not about angels, but the devil. I don't believe in a particular person who is a devil, but one of my favorite thinkers, Soren Kierkegaard, said that the devil is the one for whom everything is possible, but nothing is ever made actual. Everything is ideal and nothing is ever real. That actually is a pretty good description, I think, of what hell might be like. Because Kierkegaard is saying here, in our actual terrestrial existence, is that holiness is not found at the mountaintop. You've got to look for holiness down in the valley below, in the midst of life. That's why we talk about here at Wellsprings, in our DNA and our core values, that the most powerful spirituality is lived in everyday life, in the malls, in the streets, in our homes, in our houses. It's not here for one hour a day. And it's not where you are when you're engaged in spiritual practice. We ought not look for holiness or the sacred when things seem most pure. We can see truly the presence of a real holy man or a holy woman, what Judaism calls a tzaddik, a holy person, not in their practice, 
but we can see their presence when they are with the person who bags their groceries or the person who changes their oil. If they treat those people with dignity and do not overlook them, then yes, we are in the presence of the holy, but if they don't, I don't want to hear what they have to teach. Over the years, I have met many, many self-proclaimed holy people who at base are really just arrogant. It is just another unhealthy attachment and a way to set themselves apart from the brothers and the sisters who don't quite get it, who are just still too besotted to understand what the real truth is. Because no path to enlightenment ever involves stepping on someone else. If we can, in our spiritual quest, avoid the pitfalls of narcissism, the kind of narcissism that says our power can be spread out everywhere we go, and we pity all those fools who don't quite get it. We can avoid the pitfalls of that narcissism because there is real power in spiritual practice. Then we are truly growing. The fairy tales, the classic fairy tales, they are all really instructed here. From King Midas to Darth Vader. All those who seek control at all costs and all those who would seek mastery without the mystery. Ultimately, they find that it is their own heart's most deep yearning that proves finally, tragically, and unalterably unattainable. This, by the way, is the real difference for me between what some people call personal power and spiritual power. There are a lot of resources out there for you. You can spend $500 on CDs on tape if you want to learn about personal power. There's a difference between that and spiritual power. Personal power will, in one shape, form, or another, tell you that you have limitless power, that you can remake the world in your own image. That's the oldest sin there is, and it's called pride. Spiritual power is about harnessing the power that is ours and relating it as part to that which is whole. We must remember the original story of Narcissus. He was so gorgeous, so beautiful, so lovely, that when he caught a reflection of himself in the pond, all he could do was stare at himself. His life ebbed away because he was so overcome by just his own light that he could not see the light that other people had as well. He was blind to any other beauty other than his own. So we can take some time away from our spiritual practice, test ourselves a little bit. Says the real spiritual power here, or is there a little bit of narcissism? We take the time to chill out, step away. We recognize that the world does not need any more joyless saints. The world needs laughing and dancing spirits. And we know ultimately the test is this, that as we expand our consciousness, simultaneously something else is diminishing, which is our own self-consciousness. As our individual consciousness expands, we find some of those old worries about me, about us, what about me, starting to diminish and go away. The question is put beautifully by one of my favorite 
meditation teachers, Jack Kornfield, his book, A Path with Hearts. And he talks about a journey through the perils and promises of a spiritual life. He says, ultimately, breaking it all down, what I've just been saying, ultimately, the question is this. Are you living a path with heart? Jack Cornfield has sat for 48, maybe even it might have been 72 hours straight by a riverside in meditation and practicing for his monkhood. He said, ultimately, that does not matter. What matters most? Are we, are you living and walking on a path with heart? This ultimately is the return to life, to accepting the messiness of the everyday and letting it be and still being at peace within it. And at the same time, and I hope you've had these kind of episodes, surprising yourself like I did on the elevator, that yeah, you really have changed, that yes, you really are more loving that yes, you really are more wise and more grounded and more able to meet life on life's terms. Well, if you can do that, then you should celebrate the progress you have made with your wise choices. And then even more, having celebrated these choices, plan for greater work to be done. Finally, the experience of a spiritual practice comes down to this. Gratitude. Can we be thankful? Are we thankful for the life that we are living? And are we really relating to it? Meister Eckhart, who was a mystic of unbelievable power of mind and of insight, said most simply, and I know some of you are very fond of this saying, if the only prayer you ever say in your life was thank you, That will be enough. And it is. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O God, O eternal spirit, let us follow the call, not to the mountaintop, but back into life. Let us follow the call, not of an illusory, set-apart perfection, but follow the call to be with and to be amongst. Let us follow the call not of a life beyond any sorrow, but let us follow the call of a life back into that deeper joy and that deeper love that travels and traverses underneath and inside of our everyday lives. Let us follow the call back into life. And let us also be as those who take the time to prepare for that life. May we practice our hearts, practice with our minds, practice with our hands, until ultimately there is not much difference between where we practice and where we live. And we can call the life that we have whole and good. Amen.